Hello and welcome to the Fresh Thoughts Podcast. I'm John Maver and with me today are Cappy Pop. Hi John, what's going on? And Zachary Chastain. Hey guys, I'm dialing in from the car. Our guest today is Jazz Dollywall, who is the Director of Customer Care, Social Service, and Social Care at ABG Technologies. Let's get this thing started. So I'd like to introduce Jazz Dollywall. He is an old friend of ours at Thought Labs and someone that we deeply respect. He's the Director of Social Customer Care over at AVG and has years of experience both in the social side and the marketing side. He is someone that I look up to in terms of an informed source about what's going on in the web. He also is really interested in the Internet of Things and other technologies. Welcome to the show, Jazz. Thank you, John, and I'm super excited to be uh, talking to you all uh, on this great podcast. It's a, a great opportunity to, to share some thoughts and, and also to express my deep love of Cappy, <laughs> the man, the legend, the chef, the Instagrammer. Well, this is our first podcast, and there's no better way to learn than by doing. So let's get started with the first topic. Here we go. So what I'd like to talk about is a, uh, a blog post that just came out a few days ago from HubSpot. It was started by a tweet by Rand Fishkin from Moz about how many posts that HubSpot had put out that week. It was 49. And he thought that that was a little too many, a few too many. So after talking for a while, they agreed to do a co-experiment where they would vary the number and quality of their posts over a period of time and then analyze the results. So I'll start with HubSpot first, and then I'll tell you the results from Moz. So HubSpot uh, did a two-week benchmark, and they found out that they publish about 23 posts a week. Then they did a two-week low-volume, high-comprehensiveness test, which meant they had more detail but published fewer posts, about 11 and a half that week. Uh, then they did a two-week test of high-volume, low-comprehensiveness, where they put out 34 and a half posts on average in a week, but they were much lighter posts. And what they found was that the low volume, high comprehensiveness posts gave them 32% fewer views, 4% uh, fewer leads, and reduced their overall churn a little bit. Whereas the high volume, low comprehensiveness posts got them only 5% more traffic, 90% more leads, but dramatically increased their churn. And the reason their churn increased so much is because HubSpot has a feature where people can get instantly notified when a new blog post is posted, and their email uh, was going out of control as they got all these, these uh, posts. So even though the total leads were higher, the overall conversion rate for the high volume was only 1% better, and it required for, far more effort to put out all those posts. So they've decided to kind of keep their, their level at around 23 posts. So is that 23 posts per week, like across all of their business units? Is that how much they put out as a company? Yes. Oh, I thought it would be higher than that. Well, it can be higher. Obviously, it was higher that one week with 49. But it has been lower. And in this particular case, it was just 23 for the benchmark period. So basically, high volume wasn't worth it. It required far more effort, and they didn't get enough of a, a boost. Then they did some additional analysis to figure out what kind of posts performed the best for getting leads and views. And this part's pretty interesting, and I'll have a blog post out on this uh, hopefully today or on Monday. The, uh, the deal is that basically 
tofu type posts, uh, current news, Google of the day, kind of low fluffy type posts, and then deep in-depth articles, how things work in an advanced sense, and infographic slash slideshare posts do the best for overall views for them. Whereas for leads, they found that promos, which are kind of blog post wrapper landing pages, so hey, here's 12 tips, and if you like this, download the ebook kind of thing, and also tactical posts, which are the lighter how-tos, did the best for leads. So unfortunately, they didn't find a, a single post type that was the best for both leads and views, but as a result of this analysis, they're going to focus on changing their mix to promo posts, deep tactical, these tofu or kind of current event type posts and more of the graphical posts because they feel like that'll give them the best mix. So I thought that was pretty interesting in terms of how to gear your post types. Yeah, I mean, I think it really depends on the type of business you're in and, and in and the types of engagement that you want to get from your audience. Um, you know, I like all of us, I think, you know, we subscribe to a number of different uh, newsletters and, you know, there's a certain amount of attention that we tend to have uh, all the time that we have to actually read some of these things. So for me personally, I mean, you know, it depends on uh, what I'm doing at that time and also the device that I'm using. So for certain authors, uh, I subscribe to content which mm -hmm. I know is going to be deep and meaningful and that I'm going to read when I have more time. But there are certain other authors that I just want to get that, you know, quick insight stacking on content, you might call it, for the, for the time, that infinite bit of wisdom that will help. Um, so it kind of really depends on what you want from the audience. What do you, you know, what do your expectations is from that mm. brand or from, uh, or from this organization or the type of content you're trying to get. But it's very interesting results. Mm, very true. Uh, just a, an aside about uh, read it later content. I find that I often turn read it later content into read it never content. It goes into <laughs> uh, into pocket and then never actually gets read. But I I feel better for having bookmarked it in a way, right? Like somehow I become smarter just by by stashing it away. I think uh, I, I think that's a, a yeah. I think that a lot of us tend to do is that you know that uh, and I I've actually stopped using Pocket for for that very reason because I ended up being a a, a great collector of content, right? Uh, but never a great sort of reader. So I tend now to force myself to uh, only a few newsletters. Uh, that I will keep a staple, but um, but you know I will go through them on uh, on the weekend or or uh, at least one day, normally Wednesday for me, just to tend to go through and find out what's going on. And there's a there's a there's a big mix of content. Mm. So um, Benedict Evans, for example, uh, you know if you're interested in stats and numbers and uh, links to important news of the week, he releases a, a very interesting newsletter, uh, and it's just full of stats and numbers and. It's really useful if you want to be able to pull out numbers and details very, very quickly. But you know, regarding HubSpot, for example, and I'm not a subscriber of, of their newsletter, um, but if I'm looking for something more deep and meaningful, case studies, for example, I would perhaps look there. So it really depends on who you are and what you're trying to look for. It's but true. Um, but there's a but you know there's a market for everything out there. You just have to be selective in terms of what's useful for you. It's true. HubSpot also did an analysis of where their traffic came from over time, and unsurprisingly. Month one for any type of post ends up being the most successful. And if something is successful in month one, then it tends to do better over time. But basically, email, social, and referrals all happen in the first month, and after that, it's all organic traffic. So basically, you should write content that is built to last. Yes. I mean, I mean one thing I would add uh, as general advice to brands or is that if you're looking to develop this type of content, 
and you're looking to sort of share it on a, a regular basis, don't stick to the same formula. So what tends to happen is people write for one audience or for one medium, uh, whether it be a blog post, and then they feel that they can just take that content and they share it everywhere. And to a greater extent, you can, but you need to edit it. You need to you need to be more respectful of who the reader is and what's really going to be appealing to them. So, you know, a graphic or a, an interesting byline, you know, is going to be way more important uh, in, in some cases than it, than it is others. But really, it depends on uh, how you're framing that content. So, um, you know, I, I would say spend more time with that and, and, and don't keep the same flow. Try things and see what works best for you. Yeah, I can see how you might over time end up specializing your content to the people that respond to it most often and those people might not map to the end users you're trying to talk to in the in the first place so a variety of content could help address that so that's hubspot side 23 posts a day that's a lot uh certainly way more than we can produce uh so the flip side of that is moz who produces one post a day with none on the weekends they have whiteboard Fridays, and so their version of the experiment was really just to change what they did Monday through Thursday to either double or half the uh, content. And they found that dropping the volume in half only gave them a slight drop in page views, whereas doubling the publishing didn't really double their page views, made a very little difference at all. And their conclusion was people come, they can only read so much of Ma's content, and one about one a day and in terms of commenting the more posts they have the more selective people became about what they commented on so their overall comment level didn't change and for uh, email it since they're not doing the instant emails they didn't really notice a difference in subscriptions so their end takeaway was they're going to keep to a goal of about one post a day during the weekdays but they use that extra time during the the lower volume weeks to do other business-related activities that they found really rewarding or to produce better quality content. And they found that that content was much more rewarding and also more likely to be picked up in organic search. I mean, that's, um, it's interesting. And as we said earlier, it really depends. You have to work out what's the right formula for you and what works best for you. And depending on your stats and your measures uh, will dictate how you go forward. I mean, we've said for many years, and as an industry term, that content is king, and uh, and I, that's very much true today than it has ever been. Um, but you know, in terms of spending the additional time to look at other areas, so people do tend to focus on writing a lot more, and I think uh, you know, podcasting has had a great resurgence over the last few years. Um, and think about how you might want to take that content in a different direction, in a different medium, um, and really have a conversation about it as opposed to just this is what we think and this is what we feel. Um, I think that will add more to your readership and help to expand uh, areas that you may not have existing uh, readers or listeners. So it's all good, I think. Let's see. I think it would be interesting to find out more about like what effect the, uh, the length of the content has on... Uh, how many views and leads that gets you as well. Like uh, you were talking earlier about how you put away content and then you never go and read it. And mm. I do the same thing. And so I wonder uh, how much value you're going to get out of having, you know, the shorter content. Does that matter more than uh, the volume? Well, that is an excellent point because the question is, is what is the value of the content? 
is the value of the content that you wrote something and people come to your site, skim it, and then store it, or is the value of your content that people actually read and understand it, or is the value of your content that they just share it or bookmark it? It's really interesting, isn't it? I thinks if you're a business that cares about leads, then to be honest, I actually don't care if you read the content. I just care that you appreciate that it looks good and then you sign up, right? Right. Well, I think you probably have to read it to begin with to sign up, though. You'll never see the CTAs if you don't at least glance over it. Mm. Um, and in general, I would say that I would think that the shorter content is going to be more valuable in the long run because even though people you know, are sharing more stuff than that they haven't actually read, I think that you're going to want to at least look over it quickly if you're going to share something. Yeah, I mean, I think we kind of discussed it earlier in the sense that, you know, it's got to be uh, compelling enough to look through uh, and be of interest and want and essentially want to, to make you take a further action. For starters, if the newsletter does go out, uh, you've taken an action to actually open it and you're going to take some level of time to just to skim it. So there's got to be something in there to be able to make, make you click the link, whether it's to a landing page or somewhere else, but something of interest. So it's kind of a value exchange in a sense that I'm taking out my time to read this, but what's in it for me? What, what can I get as an instant gratification that will help me take me to the next stage uh, or not? Uh, so there's, I think there's a lot in there. You know those, those internet uh, landing pages where they're trying to get you to buy something? And they seem to go on for like a million words, and they have multiple closes throughout the piece. So you, you scroll further and further down, and there's still endless numbers of facts. And eventually at the bottom is the, the price for whatever you're going to do. And I remember reading once that they have to be that long because at any point you're convinced you'll just skim to the bottom and sign up. But if you're not convinced, they have a million more opportunities to convince you that it's worth it. And so they just infinitely extend the length of the article to hopefully close every single person that could ever read it. I think times have changed. Uh, I think in our uh, in our sort of culture, very much where we want to to get you know the, to the point. Uh, and I think also you've got to depend. It also depends on what the type of device you're reading on as well. So. Uh, there's a lot of assumptions still that people are reading just on laptop-based devices, but you know we live in a complex world with mm. hybrid-based devices, larger smartphone screens, tablets, and so on. Um, it's you know try to make it easy for the end reader. So where do you read most of your content, Jess? Uh, I will. Uh, so I do a lot of triage. So I live in a very uh, mobile-focused world. Uh, I have a, an iPhone six plus. Uh, and I have an iPhone 5. So I will tend to uh, quickly skim through the, my email, uh, any particular newsletters. I will skim through it very quickly if there's something in there that, uh, that really stops me and wants me uh, to, uh, to, you know, really grabs me, I'll, I'll kind of read it then and there. Uh, if not, I'll tend to just tend to leave it. But um, I would say in all, all honesty, I probably do still a lot of reading on my, on my laptop still. Mm. What about you, Cappy? 95% on my phone, 5% on my laptop, and I would read. Before, I would say it was probably 40% on my phone, 50% on my on my uh, tablet, and 10% on my laptop, but I lost my iPad, so mostly on my phone. And does that change the way that you consume content? No question. I skim it unless it's something. So if there's something I absolutely adore, so one thing that you were talking about 
back to the original argument or the original premise, which was long form versus short form, detailed versus high level, I guess. I don't know the words you use, but that's basically what it boiled down to. Be interested to see like what the readability of that content was. So when you when you compare these two people, like a lot of HubSpot articles, though they are very informative, are written at a much lower grade level than Moz articles. Right. Moz articles, when I read them, I have to I read them almost always on my laptop because they're meat and almost everything in there when especially when Rand writes, I have to listen to everything he says because it's not only read it, but write down things or put it in a Google Doc or there's a bunch to follow up, whatever. HubSpot articles tend to be, there's data in there, but I scan through them and I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. And then I move on. Can't do that with the other ones. So I tend to read stuff that I know I'm going to blast through on my phone and rarely when it's really important, it either goes into Pocket, Evernote, or I send myself an email with the link uh, if I'm not, if I don't feel like launching the app on my phone. And then I read that in detail on a laptop so I can take notes and all that. Makes sense. Then Jazz, just, you? Uh, no, I just tend to uh, outsource all the reading for me. I have people who read it and then just give <laughs> me the highlighted points. Just give me the 140-character uh, the, the version. I see. That's that's smart. You Very got smart. people. Very mm-hmm. smart. Uh, it's it's I, I would say it's a complex world. It, it it is complicated. So I think you know that we we are spoiled today for a whole range of devices, and it really depends on what you have. But um, as I say, it it really it really does depend. I mean, as I say, I tend to look at the author. I tend to look at the the content. If it's something like a HubSpot, I will probably spend more time and probably read that on my on my uh, laptop. I uh, appreciate the wider display. There's occasionally links in there which I want to read further. It may have links to PDF articles and so on. But generally, you know, skimming through mobile devices uh, is the quickest and easiest way to get through stuff. So let's talk about mobile again. And what if you come to something where there's an offer in that particular piece? Uh, so the article is, you know, uh, in-depth how to increase traffic to your website. And there's really a lot of great facts. And at the end, there's an encapsulated form that they're offering, an ebook or something. Are you likely to, to sign up for that ebook inside your mobile browser? Or are you likely to skip it versus doing on a desktop desktop um for me personally i've um a lot of the newsletters and the content that i've seen um has been so badly formatted for the mobile interface that even if it was there i probably would miss it (laughs) um so you know going back to my original point is that if you're going to produce these type of newsletters do make sure that the formatting Mm. is correct and also where you are positioning your offer it's going to be seen um, so I wouldn't necessarily have it uh, you know, right at the end of the article that you're looking to get out there it, you have to experiment and, and play with it so um, I, I mean to be honest if I've, if I've taken if I've engaged in some kind of coupon or some kind of offer it's, it's been mainly because I've seen it uh, on a desktop display as opposed to mobile I see. Yeah, I find that I'm more reluctant to, to do things with offers on mobile because there's nowhere for that file to go really right i don't want it to just open up in the browser uh, i think maybe that's changed a little bit now with the integration of these uh, desk or so these online storage services in, uh, right into the operating system like dropbox or google docs where now you can save it off but in the old days and i think where i'm still more accustomed to working if that pdf opened up it's just there and there's nothing no, that's to do still with a it. problem i still have it all the time you have to open it in iBooks or Evernote, and then depending upon the app you're opening it from, sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't, mm. and then it loses your place on the landing page, and sometimes you have to refill everything out. Mm. That's annoying as hell. So I tend to do all my that type of thing rarely, unless I need it. 
on my phone, I almost always do that on a desktop. That makes sense. Which is hard because now you're breaking the flow, right? If I was ready to engage on mobile and I hit a situation where it's difficult to interact on mobile, I abandon rather than do it later. Yeah, I think I mostly consume stuff on the desktop actually because I rarely leave the house unless I'm going to do a podcast. And so um, so it's really convenient to just sit there and uh, read stuff there. And like you were saying, you know, the – um, mobile stuff tends to not be formatted well. Um, and so it's easier for me to just go through and do my, the majority of my reading there. I do a lot of reading, uh, on the, on mobile with Quora though. Like I read a lot of other people's answers on mobile, not as much writing questions though, cause that's not very convenient. So, um, I was thinking that it'd be interesting to talk about the, uh, future of social, uh, as far as it goes with uh, content marketing and where you would want to build an online community. Wow. Um, On this podcast? Wow. Sounds like a short topic. We're going to kill our listeners. All right, lead it off then. Let's hear it. Okay. Well, I'm thinking, so the current model is that uh, you build a community on each social channel and you kind of manage those separately. But over the last few years, Facebook has made uh, user posts harder to find and for community members and it's like seriously reduced organic reach and so I think that if I were going to build an online community today I would build it on a blog and use social to drive uh, targeted traffic there to grow the community there uh, so then I only pay once to acquire them and I can talk to them as often as I like uh, the goal wouldn't be to get them to like a Facebook page. I would be going for subscriptions to the blog. So, like, uh, according to MailChimp, the open rates for emails are around 20% or better for almost every industry. Uh, meanwhile, Facebook's average reach is, like, 2.6% in March. So, uh, that way I don't have to pay every time I send an email and I'm getting I'm reaching 20% of my audience instead of, like, 3%. That's interesting. So you have a large upfront cost to drive people there, and your hope is that yep. you convert them all into leads right away. Right. Interesting. And then how would you deal with interactions? Uh, well, the posts, we were talking about post mirroring earlier, but that doesn't really work yet. But um, I would probably go with either a social comment plugin, like with Facebook, where you can comment as your Facebook profile there on a blog post, or... Uh, some other platform like Discus or something where people are likely to already have an account and can comment directly there. So what do you think, Jazz? Do you end up interacting on external sites? Do you go to blogs and comment in the blog posts, or do you interact on social networks mostly? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, and I think that today uh, the world is a lot more mixed than it used to be, and I think... Uh, you know, I think you really have to you really have to look at all the different audiences that you want to sort of go after, um, and I tend to segment my audience. I, I would agree with Zach. I think that um, having a blog is still quite important to have long form based content available, and it always gives you an option to send people to, whether it be on the desktop side or the mobile side. Um, and I, but I tend to find that over years that 
a lot of people don't necessarily want to comment on that particular site. Uh, the conversation will still occur on social. So, you know, you need to be aware of, of that and be aware that the conversation may be taking place elsewhere and really spend time to search out those conversations. Search for your title, search for some of your content, search for your author and seeing where those conversations take place and take part in them. Um, so I, I think it really depends on the audience you're going for, uh, the type of content that you have. But sometimes the old ways are, are the best. And I think, you know, email... Uh, communications for email uh, and the open rates are still can be far more effective than uh, necessarily doing everything across social. So do you think that the engagement actually even matters in Zach's model and instead he's just driving people to his posts? Does he care that they engage at all or is he really just looking for people to receive his information via email and then visit his site to get the results? It, it, it depends on the type of content that you have. I mean, you know, a, a Facebook like uh, today for me is, is way less of, le is of less value. For me, if there is a, an action within the post or, uh, you know, whether it be a sign up or whether it be find out further information uh, or learn more or, you know, take up a webinar or sign up to a newsletter, for example, that means more to me than just an engagement of someone saying like. Um, or even sometimes leaving a comment which doesn't really help me to do, do anything, help me to respond or anything else. So I, I'm, I'm more interested today in useful engagement uh, to the brand and also to the end uh, person who's reading it. What about you, Cappy? Do you engage on blogs or on social? Zach, you got to mute big time. I would say... Primarily on social, but only for blogs I already follow. I never leave blog comments. I right. mean, ever. Ever. If anything, an engagement, I'll engage on social related to a blog post. I'll post a link and then comment on it on Twitter, for instance, um, or LinkedIn, asking for other feedback elsewhere. Or I'll engage. LinkedIn would probably be the most common place for me to engage on a blog post. Um, but, or I'll post it on Facebook, but I rarely, if ever, leave a blog comment. I can probably count on one hand in the last year. Mm. Nobody ever replies to him, and I never go back to check anyone. Makes sense. So what do you think, Zach? Is, how would you, uh, how would you a, get your engagement? So that is an interesting point about how no one really engages on blog comments, uh, the people who write them. But I mean, how much of your uh, of your not wanting to engage there is because traditionally a lot of people just aren't going to be there to engage with, back with you? I think in my case, I only find out about most of these blogs through social anyway, right? Exactly. My news source becomes social. The front end becomes social. I read the post. I click on it from there. I read the post and I go back to social to comment on it. Uh, yeah. so I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I completely agree. But one or thing I, do I, actually... I do it through an RSS reader. I see the post. I share the post. Make my comment there. Ask for comments on my wherever feed. But I have very little comment on there. But uh, a question I have actually for you both, and uh, and it equally does apply. Uh, how often do you go through your RSS feeds, Cappy, and decide whether you're still interested in that uh, that author <laughs> or that site? And same thing for John. You, know, you get your uh, feeds from social, 
But how often do you actually go through the people you're following and decide, do I still care about you now? Because people change, content changes, and people's focus changes. Never. Um, I, on social now, I mean, I do tweak the platform a little bit. And the platform, on, especially on Facebook, evolves with what I interact with. I do use Feedly with a ton of old RSS feeds. And to be honest, they're grouped in categories. And I only read one category and I ignore every other single feed on my entire device. So I never call them. And I probably should, but that's just the way it goes. Yeah, I called mine recently. I would say twice a year I go through. But I'm like John. I read probably – I categorize them in subfolders or in categories, and I go through maybe four of them regularly. But it's usually swipe, 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 unless something really catches my eye. Um, on other networks, LinkedIn, I keep pretty tight. Um, Facebook, I keep very tight. Uh, Twitter, I don't care. I don't I care. Have to say, I, I have don't to say care LinkedIn, I have to say LinkedIn is crushing it. Uh, there's two platforms that mm -hmm. I spend a lot of time now is on LinkedIn and also on Medium. Um, so I get a lot more considered based, meaningful based content on both of those platforms. But really how LinkedIn came from behind, opened up their platform originally in beta to, to influencers and now you know, we're seeing people um, from all around the world uh, who are taking the time out to write stuff. Um, it's way better than I would find uh, just amateur-based blogging. It's more deep and considered-based content, but you know, it, it's a great place to, to, to learn. Agree, agree. Yes, I really enjoy that platform too. I also enjoy bacon sun sandwiches. <laughs> Zach? Yeah, so another thing is that I don't think that I would completely ignore social. Like, I think part of the goal there is also to get people to share those posts on social, uh, the subscribers, and also maybe, like you mentioned, you could do some outreach as well where you're finding people who are talking about similar topics on social and engaging with them. I think that just primary, that primarily the difference for me is that I wouldn't focus on building the community on social. Still yeah. leverage it for, uh, for reaching out, but not for the primary place for engagement. I think a lot of businesses have come to that same conclusion over the past year, where they need social as part of their engagement, but they used to be build your home on social and now it's not. It's but too you expensive. Know, but you know, one thing I will say, and I think this is where almost going full circle, is that originally, you know, before Web 2.0 and uh, very much before social became a thing, uh, communities always existed. Um, right. And they were throughout the web, uh, whether they be forums or whether they be groups, um, but they always existed. And what originally happened was that you know, if you were a brand or you had a particular interest, you, know, you had to earn the right to be a part of that. Right? And so we went through these sort of stages over the years where these large pockets of communities existed or had grown over the years. And uh, you know, people either wanted to take them over or shut them down. And I think that we're getting to the point now where we're almost going full circle that community still exists. It doesn't necessarily mean that as a brand or as an individual you have to set one up. You just need to find out where your most engaged and passionate people are. Um, and you know, it may be on Instagram, it may be on Flickr, it may be Facebook, it may be you know any particular way. But I think you need to go and spend some time out rather than focus on building a community to see if there's one already there. I think that's kind of where it's going. Hmm. That's a good point. All right. Well, thanks for coming today, Jazz, and uh, thanks for participating, Cappy and Zach, and we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you, guys. Thank you, everyone.
You've been listening to the Fresh Thoughts Podcast from Thought Labs. Please subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you consume your favorite podcasts. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Thought Labs. And thanks for listening. Remember, if it's not fresh, it's just awful. Do you know how many people would pay to hear this British voice?